Okay, today's Bible reading is John 19, verse 30, and then all of John chapter 20. Uh, on the cross, Jesus was thirsty, so they gave him some sour wine. And then from verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then, bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, Jesus' body was taken down from the cross, wrapped in accordance with burial customs and laid in a tomb. And we continue in chapter 20. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark. She saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then, following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to him, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. When it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After, he said, after saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, called Twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hand... I put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
A week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Are we good? Okay. Um, uh, before we get started, a couple of just small uh, housekeeping things. One is these are beautiful flowers that have been decorated, uh, but they are just going to sit here and rot uh, throughout the week. So if you would like to take them home afterwards and decorate your home with them, please take them and just return the vases at some point in time. That would be good. The second thing is that um, as a church, as you know, we, uh, we're kind of... Ha- uh, aiming to help people come to Jesus through inviting them to various different things. And one of the things we're doing as a church is to uh, go to see a movie about Jesus together. There's a sign-up sheet in the back. Um, we have a handful of tickets left. So if you'd like to go, um, please, uh, yeah, put your name down um, and how many tickets you need, that would be good. But this morning we are focusing on, um, really, on on this on this passage on Jesus' resurrection and the fact that um, in our Apostles' Creed we say things like, I believe in the resurrection of the body and in the life everlasting. Now as Christians we believe in the resurrection of, of the dead. It is one of the fundamental truths of Christianity. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that, but, uh, and that he rose again three days later. And because of that, our lives have worth and have meaning and have purpose. Jesus' resurrection means something for us today. And so I want to explore this theme of believing in the resurrection of the body from a few different angles this morning. And the first thing that I want to focus on is this, was the theme also of our children's talk, and that is that belief in the resurrection is intellectually robust. It is a robustly intellectual thing to do. If you asked people just in general, you know, do dead people come back to life? They might say, oh yes, if they get, you know, the paddles put on them and their heart stopped and they come back. Um, But that's really the only extent to which people would come back from the dead. They might say that resurrection is scientifically impossible. And since it's scientifically impossible, you are a fool if you believe in the resurrection. Because we know that science is right all of the time and science says no, therefore you're a fool if you believe that. The basic worldview of most of our society is that truth is found only in what can be experimented on. But given that that's the world we view, we work with, with the people we interact with every day, we need to be able to defend our position. 
Now, thankfully, actually, we find that believing in the resurrection of Jesus is robust. It's intellectually honest. It is probably a lesser faith position than not believing in the resurrection. And we actually have really good reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Good, solid, robust reasons for trusting what the Bible says is true. And I want to give you just three this morning. The first is the evidence of the empty tomb. Now, the empty tomb is a real problem to deal with if, in fact, Jesus did not raise from the dead. Because here's the thing. The tomb had guards stationed in front of it. These were battle-hardened soldiers. They were not superstitious, flaky people. They didn't just faint on the job. They didn't have flights of fancy. It was their job to guard the tomb, and the tomb was empty. Now, how could the tomb have been emptied if these battle-hardened soldiers protecting the tomb uh, were there? The only way that could happen is if something spectacular happened to chase the guards away. In the Roman era, if you were a guard that abandoned your post, you could be executed for your negligence. So this is not something the guards would have done, uh, you know, just willy-nilly. It takes a lot of faith um, for them to believe, uh, sorry, it takes a lot of faith for people to believe that the disciples who abandoned Jesus at the crucifixion would suddenly turn and attack and overpower these Roman soldiers. These things just don't hold logically together. The most obvious reason to believe in the empty tomb is the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead and that because he rose from the dead, the tomb was empty. The second thing is his post-resurrection appearances. We have to look at the eyewitness accounts. Now, if you are like me, you enjoy a bit of a legal show or a police show, you would know that one of the most potent elements of finding someone guilty of a crime is if you had the evidence of an eyewitness. If there was someone who actually saw what happened, they could, they, you know, you, you, you're very well on your way to getting a conviction. The thing is that there are plenty of witnesses to make the case for the resurrection. In Matthew 8, we read that the first two witnesses to the open tomb were two women. John tells us that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was taken away. She was also the first to see Jesus, according to the passage we read. Now, friends, we have to understand that if you wanted to start a religion, if you wanted to concoct a story, if you wanted people to believe you in the first century, then you would come up with a plan that didn't involve the testimony of women. Because women were viewed as unreliable evidence and their evidence was in fact inadmissible in court. And so putting these two ladies in the witness stand is something really stupid to do if you were a gospel writer and wanted to make up the story of the resurrection. But actually they simply recorded the truth. They actually just said what happened. So they were the first two witnesses and again, it doesn't make any sense for that to be the case if Jesus did not really rise from the dead. But scripture also gives us a whole bunch of other witnesses. There are Jesus' disciples. Now if you were a skeptic or an unbeliever, you would say, well their evidence might be tainted too, for they had something to gain. They were members of his inner circle. 
But these are not the only witnesses that Scripture provides. In fact, there's a multitude to them. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. Now, you may be able to get together a small group of people who had ulterior motives uh, to agree to a hoax. That's possible. But it's impossible for that number to be 500 or more and for those people to be willing to die for their faith. The most obvious solution to the problem is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And when Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, he adds that most of these witnesses are still alive. So he's putting the challenge on the reader. He says, if you don't believe me, just find one and ask them. Don't take my word, go and check it out. That would be impossible if it were not true. And again, this isn't quite the way you would act if you knew this was a hoax or a lie. And yet there's another witness still, not a witness who was a close inner circle friend of Jesus, not a family member, not one of his other disciples who came to believe. Instead, this was an enemy of the followers of Jesus. This was a person who delighted in persecuting them, hunting them down, imprisoning them. Paul writes of himself, Last of all, Christ appeared to me also as one abnormally born. This former enemy who had uh, persecuted Jesus now turns to follow Jesus and he speaks passionately about the resurrection. His life is radically turned around. In fact, he is willing to die for his faith. And if that was true, if, if, uh, sorry, if Jesus' resurrection wasn't true, then that would make no sense for Paul to have done that. So you've got the empty tomb, you've got all these witness accounts, and you also have the radically changed lives of the disciples. Now we have to think about the disciples for a moment. We often sort of mythologize them a little bit and, and think of them as these great heroes of faith and they did miracles and all these sorts of things. But when you read their life story, they are largely a group of pretty hopeless men. They deserted Jesus when he was imprisoned and put on trial. Even his closest friends abandoned him in fear. But after the resurrection, these same yellow-bellied cowards are all of a sudden willing to die to, for their faith. They proclaim uh, powerfully that Jesus came back from the dead. They were, in our text, hiding in the upper room with the doors locked. They were scared for their lives. And all of a sudden, their lives turn radically around. That would not be possible had not Jesus actually convinced them otherwise. Let's imagine for a second that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, that his disciples had snatched his body from the tomb and that they had then started to preaching, uh, preaching that he rose from the dead even though they knew it was a lie. What motive would they have for sticking to their story if they knew that it would cost them their lives? They didn't become rich from it. They didn't have a secure life, be able to provide well for their family. People will die for their beliefs if they sincerely believe that they are true. But they don't die for a religious belief they know to be false. 
J.P. Moreland, a scholar on this text, he, he puts it this way. He says, These disciples often went without food. They slept outside exposed to the elements. They were ridiculed, beaten, imprisoned. Most of them were executed in torturous ways. Now, when you have 11 credible people with no ulterior motive and nothing to gain and a lot to lose, who all agree that they saw the resurrection with their own eyes, then you've got some difficulty trying to explain that away. In fact, I find the radically changed lives of the disciples to be one of the most compelling evidences of the resurrection. So you've got this empty tomb that could have only happened if Jesus really rose. You have these eyewitness accounts as Jesus appeared to over 500 people, which you couldn't realistically fake. You have the radically changed lives of the disciples, which seem impossible if Jesus hadn't raised from the dead. Just off the top of my head, you think that the establishment of the church, where a whole bunch of Jews who had kept faithfully the Sabbath day, all of a sudden give up their customs and start meeting together on the first day of the week, the Sunday. Taken together, you have a whole bunch of really robust reasons, intellectually robust reasons for believing in the resurrection. In fact, the evidence is so compelling that it convinced a criminal defence lawyer who lived uh, a little while ago uh, in Britain. His name was Sir Lionel Laku. He was considered to be one of the greatest lawyers and legal minds of hi in history. He was an atheist. And he was once challenged to prove that atheism was true. And so he started looking at the evidence of the resurrection. And after in investigating and reviewing the evidence, this giant of the courtroom, this colossus of the legal system, said the following. So after looking at all the, the evidence, he says this. I humbly add that I have spent more than 42 years as a defence trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and I was still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials and I say unequivocally that the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. If minds far greater than mine and yours are absolutely compelled by the evidence of the resurrection, friends, we can happily and with intellectual robustness believe in the resurrection account. If you believe in the resurrection, you are no fool. In fact, given the overwhelming evidence, only some of which we looked at today, you would be correct in saying it takes more faith to believe that the resurrection wasn't true than to believe that it was. The resurrection is intellectually robust, robustly intellectual. It is also really applicable to our lives. We believe in the resurrection of the body and in the life everlasting. If the resurrection is true, which we have really good reasons to believe it is, then it means we can take Jesus at his word. The Apostle Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ had not been raised, then our faith is futile. We are still in our sins, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If, if uh, only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are to be the most pitied. But Christ has indeed risen from the dead. And what Paul is basically saying here is if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're in a terrible position because our lives are meaningless. If the resurrection wasn't real, 
then we would be wasting our lives trying to live for Jesus, trying to live lives that obey his commandments. In essence, Paul is saying if the resurrection is not real, then you should go and just live your life for yourself. Do whatever makes you happy. Abandon the idea that serving other people are important. Abandon ideas like it's better to give than to receive. Stop giving your money away. Just enjoy the good stuff you can with your money and stop caring about others and live for yourself. Now, I'd also really appreciate it if you don't just cut the context out of that and quote that, you know, about me. Um, it'd be good. Because if the resurrection's not real, then really this is all that there is. And our task in life would be to get as much meaning and enjoyment out of it as we can. But that's the point. Actually, the resurrection is real. And since it is real, our lives need to look radically different. Because the resurrection is real, the things of this world start losing their appeal. Because the resurrection is real, we don't have to devote ourselves to ourselves. Because the resurrection is real, we, we, we realize that there is more to life than just trying to live our best life now. Where you do you and I do me. Because the resurrection is real, we can sacrifice and serve and live our lives for the best of others. Even pray and support people who are our enemies. Why? Because precisely this is not all there is. Our world is but a pit stop. This world is but a pit stop to our eternal life. We aren't home yet. We are still on the way. There is a life everlasting which we are going to because we believe in Jesus, the one who overcame death and in him we have eternal life. The resurrection really does change our perspective on this life and it turns the priorities the world gives you upside down. The resurrection changes our perspective on this life and it reorients our hope to eternity. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we have hope not just in this life, but also for the next. Because we know that death is not the end. It is just a gateway, a transition into eternal life with God where all the suffering and pain of this world ends. We have to realise that the resurrection is the single most important event in Jesus' life. It is the cornerstone of our, our salvation. Yes, the crucifixion is critical. In the crucifixion, Jesus took his sins, on, uh, our, sins sorry, our sins on himself and he died in our place. But without the resurrection, we would not know whether that actually worked or not. Without the resurrection, we would not know whether God actually accepted Jesus' sacrifice. But because he is raised again, friends, you and I can be sure that our sins are truly paid for on the cross. And when Jesus says, it is finished, it truly was done. Without the resurrection, our faith would be futile. 
And as Paul says, we would still be in our sins. But the resurrection has given us new life and proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. Sin has lost its grip on me. And like Paul, we can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? Death is no longer an enemy for the Christian. For we do not have to fear the punishment that comes after death. Death is not the end of our story. It's how the rest of our story begins. Death is a doorway to the Lord. And we know what life looks like beyond it. Because Jesus is the first fruit of those who are following him. He's, um, the first fruit is this idea in, in farming that when you have uh, crops and the, it bears the first fruits of the crop, you can tell what the quality of the rest of the crop is going to be like. So if you've got an apple grove, the first apples come out and they're really small and, and not good, you know it's not going to be a good harvest. But if they're juicy and plump and whatever, then you know it's going to go well. The Bible describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of the dead. And what was Jesus like? He had a hole in his side, he, he still bore some of the scars of this life, and yet he was living. He had these powers that we don't quite fully understand how they work, but the doors were locked and he just appeared. And I think he had a bit of uh, humour as well. He appears to the disciples and, and <laughs> it's like, peace be with you. Um, and, and they're all joyous at his, as, at his appearing. They, they are, you would expect them to be shocked, but I imagine that Jesus held some of his personality, all of it probably, in that space. And because we are in him, that is what our eternal lives will look like. The pain and scars of this life may go with us, but they will make the eternal life better. What an amazing and joyous prospect it is that we can be assured of that because we have seen the first fruits in Christ. Death has been overcome and we will live forever. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with great assurance that we can live our lives in confidence as Christians. Firstly, we are not foolish, as the world says, to believe in a risen Saviour. We can hold our heads up high and confidently say with all those, to all those who call us fools that it takes more faith to believe that the resurrection didn't happen than to believe it did. And so because the resurrection is true, we can also be assured that we don't have to worry about dedicating our lives to serving Christ because we're not missing out on anything. We have an eternal life to look forward to. And living a life of sacrifice for our King is actually the right and most sensible way to live. And we can live with assurance that whatever happens to us in this life, in the long run, doesn't matter. Because Jesus paid for the sins of all who believe. And his resurrection assures us that we will be, be with him eternally. So no matter how poorly our lives go here, even if we are killed for our faith, we still live in a privileged position. And death does not worry us because our sins are forgiven and we know in Christ we will live again. 
So friends, on this Resurrection Sunday, come to the empty tomb. See that it's empty. Look at the evidence and believe that Jesus rose from the dead and then live a life to the full knowing that Jesus rose from the dead and so you too have a full life if you believe in him. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity this morning to look at some of the evidences of the resurrection, that we could think together about what that means for us in this life and also in the life to come. We praise you, Lord, that with the apostles and Christians of all the ages, we can say with confidence that we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. We pray that you will uh, take these truths and plant them deep in our hearts so that when the periods of doubt come, we can look back and see that actually these things are true and we can trust them for very good reasons. And we pray that you will help us to reject the worldview that the world gives us, to say that we should live only for ourselves, but that instead we should see that we are part of an eternal life because of Jesus Christ, and therefore we are right and wise to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.